Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Hey, um, hey, and let's give it up to Ray for mounting the TV. <laughs> Those of you who've been coming here, I think you're probably with me. You're just waiting for that TV to fall off the, the tripod that we were using the whole time. But it, it entertained you probably though. So, um, hey, yeah, just like Drew is saying, uh, uh, we just had a really good time at this conference. And, and that whole idea of, of moving beyond just friendliness to being friends, like that is based in God's word. We are called to love as Christ loved us. And, and we just recognize that that's who we are. That's what we're called to be. That they, they will know that we are his disciples by our love. And so, so all those mini announcements, all the events that we do, the, the costume party, the chili cook-off, the, the gag gift, the, uh, the connect groups, youth group, men's group, women's group, all these different things. It's not just so you have something to do because I would like to just be at home watching Netflix sometimes, right? But it's an opportunity for us as a family to love each other, to be friends with each other. So, so thank you so much for Amy for hosting last night. Mike, when are we gonna do crafts night? Let's go, come on, let's go, come on. I wanna build some Christmas trees. So, so no, it just, it was really cool to hear what like 17 uh, ladies there last night just uh, get to know each other. Um, so um, yeah, I just wanna just really continually just lean into that together. Um, and I know it's like when you have those deep connections, it's, it's fun because this is family. And so if you're new or even if you've been coming for a while and you don't feel as connected, let's connect, right? Let's, let's hang out. Um, my personal love language is, is quality time and, and eating and drinking. So if you want to grab lunch, go grab coffee, go grab drinks, whatever, I'm game. Let's go. So, um, but I'm only one person. Drew is only one person, right? And so the more we do that with each other, um, is, is all the, all the better. So one other little nugget, uh, that, that I want to share before, before we dive in here. So I was kind of like, if only I had a knife and I realized I have a knife. So sometimes if I was a, a mass murderer and I came at you with this, you should be scared, right? Like you should be run because I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you with this. If I'm a surgeon, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And that was one of the things that the speaker at this conference talked about was, was a lot of times we're so scared because we've been so hurt that when, when, when God's word, when his spirit, when we're, when we're teaching, when we're, when we're confronting each other, not confronting like, like, like jerks, but like when we're actually like digging in and saying, hey, let, can I talk with you about like, like a lot of times we, 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 we assume the worst that I'm a mass murderer and I'm coming to kill you and cause you bodily harm instead of a surgeon. And that song just made me think about that. My heart needs a surgeon. Guys, we need surgeons in our lives. And guess what? We can be that for each other and be that with each other. So uh, with that in mind, let's dig in. All right. Um, I will never forget, I was a youth pastor in Oklahoma, a small, conservative little town. Um, and this kid that later I found out his name was Axel. And like perfect name for this kid. He comes in and uh, he comes to, we had a, a Wednesday night meal in our dining hall in our church in our fellowship hall. And, uh, and he, he came in with the, one of these fringe kids from our, from our youth ministry, right? And Axel walks in and he is head to toe goth. I mean, like long, dark hair, just kind of like, eh, 
you know, looking and, and he has on this, this long black trench coat, black army boots, everything like that. And he just kind of like looks in now, let me paint a little bit of the background scene. Um, this was in like 99, 2000, shortly on the heels of the Columbine shooting. And so he looked like one of the trench coat mafia, you know, Dylan Klebold, uh, Klebold and, and Eric Harris, right? And, and he, he comes in and, and immediately I was kind of like, okay, I, 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 I'm a little bit concerned, right? Like, is he, what's he have underneath a trench coat? He's going to come in into our church and blow it up or whatever, you know? So I was like, I go over and I was like, hey, I'm Jason. Nice to meet you. And he goes, hi, I'm Alex. Thanks for coming over and saying hi. And I was like, you, you want to grab some, you hungry? And he goes, yeah. I said, here, I'll take you through the line. And I paid for his meal, went through the line and we grabbed our stuff. We sat down, we sat down at the table with him and his friend and, and me around this huge table, three of us. And everybody was walking by kind of like curiosity at best, pure terror at worst. And everybody's kind of like, oh, you know, grabbing kids closer. And all of a sudden he just goes, um, Mr. Jason. And I said, yeah. He goes, it feels like everybody's staring at us. And I, and I wanted to say, not us, you. <laughs> and I said, Axel, you know what? You're right. They're staring at us. And he kind of goes like that. And I said, so let's stare back. And so he just laughs. You know, he's like, okay, we're, we're, we're cool. We're, we're good, you know? Well, that night, um, I mean, Axel was the most polite, respectful, appreciative dude like of all like 70 kids that were there of, of our high schoolers that right, you know, like, like, like nobody else said, thank you, Mr. Jason, you know, <laughs> um, that week, I, I mean, it, it wasn't even that the rest, I mean, it was that night I had people calling me and coming into my office, parents, grandparents, just people from the church saying, what was that? Uh, that should never happen again. I was like, what? They're like, I just didn't feel safe. I didn't feel comfortable. I felt, felt very vulnerable with that. I didn't, I'm not okay with that. He should never come back again. And guess what? It worked. Axel never came back again. He came seeking out, hey, I live 45 minutes away. I have this friend that lives in, in this town. I, I, I'm going to come and check it out. Guess what? His friend never came back either. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. To this day, I have no idea what path Axel's life has taken. This week, as I kind of remember that story, I just, I just wept. I just grieved that. But let's be honest. Those people can set us on edge. Those people can make us feel uncomfortable, threatened, unsafe, vulnerable. But those people can take on many different forms. Each one of us probably has our own version of those people. Maybe not all of us, because some of you are probably like really, really like saintly people, but the rest of us, we have those people in our lives. Some of us know who our, those people are, and others of us maybe are unaware that we even have those people. But let's flip the script even a little bit more. Maybe some of us have felt like those people at times in our lives. 
We've felt the eyes of the people on us, judging, condemning, avoiding, just, just assuming about us, right? Well, guess what? It's always been that way. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, Jesus faced this same dynamic when he walked the earth. This morning, we're going to be looking at what Jesus said, or more importantly, how he related with those people. We're going to look at five different groups of those people, and we're going to see how Jesus's interaction with those people reveals his heart and his character. I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter seven. We've been going through Luke and just kind of building. It's been, I, I just love what we're doing in Luke. Um, again, kind of a, it's like a little bit over a chapter, so I'm not going to read every verse, but I would really encourage you just sometime today to read through Luke chapter seven, verse one through eight, uh, verse three, but the first 10 verses, uh, Luke, Luke seven, one through 10, there's this story about this Roman officer. Now let's stop right there. You're a Jew in Israel. A Roman officer isn't just a political figure. He is a conqueror. He is an occupying force. They are not liked. It's like if we were occupied by a foreign country and make us into one of their colonies, and, well, you can operate within the rules that we give you, but as long as you kind of play by our rules, you're, you're fine, right? What would we think whenever we saw that Roman official, that Roman military leader walking down the street? Jerk hate you, right? Get out, get out of here, get out of here. But, you know, well, what's interesting though, is that this is a different type of Roman officer because he actually liked the people that he was with. And he, and it talks about how he had a slave. Now this is not, the Bible is not saying that slavery is okay, right? It's just, that was a part of their culture. And so the Bible doesn't pull any punches. And it says this Roman officer had a slave, but what was crazy is it said it was he, the slave was extremely highly valued. Now, we're not talking a dollar amount. That word valued literally means to be held in high regard, to, held de- to be held dear, to be honored, to be cherished. So it's almost kind of like the, the structure of the day was, yeah, they're, they're called a slave, but it was like literally a member of their household. And it was like a, a dear, dear friend. And so this Roman officer, his, his dear friend is sick and dying. And so this officer sends word for Jesus in a neighboring town. And, and he sends one of his emissaries and he says, hey, you know, can you, you know, can you please heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll be right there. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman officer. I have my underlings. And, and if whatever I tell them, they will do. Jesus, you have authority. And you can order in the heavens things to be done. So you don't even need, I would feel embarrassed if you would come to my house because I am not worthy of you visiting my house. Like I am a lowly, you know, and you're Jesus. So just say the word, your angels will come in and and heal or whatever. Like you don't even have to, you know, scare me by doing that. Just, just do that. And Jesus is kind of like, he literally looks at all the religious people. He says, I have never seen this much faith in all the faithful of Israel. And so the the guy goes home and his friend's healed. He's healthy. He's whole. In this first story, we see that Jesus shows that he desires to use his authority to heal those people. Jesus desires to heal those people. 
Second one, second person we see is when Jesus interacts with a grieving widow. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17 says, soon after Jesus went with his disciples to a village in Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and the large crowd from the village was with her. Now let's look at what's going on here, right? Like this was 2,000 years ago. Women were not really highly valued in society. Not, not most of them. Right? And so if a, a woman was basically propped up by her husband, it's just the way the culture was, right? And the Apostle Paul comes, and we're going to see a little bit later, too, how Jesus feels about this. The Apostle Paul later on says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, men and women, like, like, women are not subservient. They are not just second-class nobodies, right? Like, like that's very clear in the writings of, of Paul and, and all throughout the Bible. But anyhow, so in this context, though, her husband dies. She loses her access to the world. So what would happen then is that you, now your son takes over. Well, this is her only son. She's lost her husband. She's grieving that. Now she's lost her only son. She's grieving that. And on top of that, guess what? Widows that lose their sons are bound to do for the rest of their lives. Beg. She literally is looking in the face the rest of her life, begging in that village. So of course, she is ripped up. She is ripped up. And that's the scene that Jesus walks into. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, now if you remember, was it last week or the week before, when Jesus sees people, it's not just, I see you. It's like, I see you. I understand you. I know you. I, I take the reality of who you are into my heart. I see you. And so, so Jesus sees her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Jesus sees the brokenness of this, that person, and he is overcome with compassion. Don't cry. Next time my kids cry, just don't cry. Jesus said it. I can say it. No, it's not. It's, he's not meaning that way. He's, he's confronting the narrative that she's in the middle of and that she thinks is the new reality for her life. Say, don't cry. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it. And the bears stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead body, then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. The, a great fear swept the crowd and they praised God saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Jesus shows compassion for those people. Jesus shows compassion for those people. The third person that we see is John the Baptist. We read about him earlier in the, in the book of Luke, and we're going we're gonna to have this interesting little interlude here um, in verse 18, uh, 18 and 19. It says, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you really the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? 
Now, it doesn't say this in Luke, but elsewhere in the Gospels, it says John is literally being held captive. He is awaiting his execution. Why? Because he spoke out against the rulers of the day. And, and so they imprisoned him. And later on, we found out he was beheaded. End of John the Baptist. And so let's, let's give John a little bit of break here. Because like, if you were awaiting your beheading for this Jesus guy, you don't want to make for dang sure that Jesus is legit. And so understandably, John has a little bit of doubt. And so he sends two of his people and say, go to Jesus and just, just say, really, Jesus? I mean, just before I die, are you the real deal? Now, who is John the Baptist? He's an aesthetic, right? I mean, he it talks about he basically wore gunny sacks and ate, ate bugs and wild honey. And he's kind of this wild, crazy guy. And people are kind of like, oh, here comes John, you know, like, let's get out of here, you know, and he's kind of fiery guy and everything like that. John was, in a sense, one of those people, even though he was a religious leader, he kind of came at it from a way that people didn't really appreciate or understand him. And so then in verse 22, how does Jesus respond? Jesus tells um, John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. He says, look at what I've been doing. Go tell John that. Reassure him. John doesn't, Jesus doesn't like, like try to, I mean, he just literally says, hey, you're going to die for something really special. Earth shattering, earth transformational, right? Then in, in, uh, in it goes on where, where Jesus says in, in verse 28, literally, he then turns from validating or if from, from reassuring and encouraging John. Now he turns to the crowd and he says, you know what, John? is the greatest human on earth. This wild, crazy, doubting guy on death row is the greatest human on earth. He validates those people. But then he also says this, he goes, but anybody who's in the kingdom of God can be greater than John. He, he provides community in that. So with, and, and it's kind of crazy because uh, Jesus then defends John in verses 31 through 35. He says, John didn't eat and drink, and you called him demon-possessed. You called him a psycho. I, Jesus, ate and drank. I hung out with friends, and I ate good food, and I drank good drink. And he called me a drunk and a glutton. Nobody can keep you happy. Nobody can keep you happy. It's, there's the, he kind of actually, Jesus kind of gets a little bit snarky, you know, is that, you understand what I'm saying? Snarky, like he's a little sarcastic. Maybe that's a Jasonism. I don't know, but, but he literally says, y'all are like little brats that say, he says in verse, uh, verse 32, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. You know, he's like, basically like, you won't play the games we want you to play. So we're taking our ball and going home. Right? Like Jesus just comes at them. So he reassures those people, he validates those people, and then he defends those people. The fourth person uh, in Luke 7, 36 through 50, again, a little bit longer chat, uh, section, I'd encourage you to read it in its entirety, um, but basically... Um, this, well, I'll, I'll just read it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus over to dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman 
um, from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. So then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Now, granted, we eat like this, right? But in that day, they would recline on, on an arm, and then their feet would be behind them on the cushions, and they they all kind of be like leaning in together. So their feet were behind them, right? Kind of, kind of weird for us, but that was just the way they did it. So all their feet were hanging out behind them. And, and can you imagine, like, we're all in this circle, leaning in and eating off the floor together, I'm sure they had really nice Roombas or something like that, right? But, and, and here comes this, it says an, a, a sinful, immoral woman. Probably a prostitute. And she comes in and she's weeping and she takes this expensive perfume and she's crying and she's, she's washing Jesus's feet with her tears and expensive perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I like it. He said to himself, in the words of Homer Simpson, keep inner thoughts inner, right? If this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus, being Jesus, (laughs) Katya answers his thoughts. (laughs) Simon! I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon replies. He goes, wait, I just thought this. And now he's talking to me what's going on. So Jesus tells him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you think loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one who canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, he looks at the woman and he's answering Simon. Get that in our heads, right? Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That's scandalous. You didn't greet me with a kiss. That was kind of how they would greet, like we shake hands or hugs or whatever. They would just kiss on the cheek or whatever, right? But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil anointing my head. That was a way of, of, of kind of like of blessing of saying, hey, I recognize you. I'm, 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 it's a soothing thing. It's a recognizing. It's valuing. It's like you're an honored guest in my home. And it says, you neglected me that courtesy, but she has anointed my feet with a rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little only will, will only love a little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Jesus doubles down. He says to the women, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He won't let up. They're all trying to like, oh, she needs to leave. This is awkward. She, this is, and, and he, Jesus shows that he forgives those people. The last one. Women. I would like to think as a society, we've, we've come a little ways in 2000 years, but I think women probably still feel the brunt of this a little bit, right? So what does Jesus, what does Jesus say about you, right? 
Guys, we need to pay attention to this too. Chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. So Jesus is out on the road. It is Jesus mega tour, year 32, you know, um, 3280 or 3380 or whatever. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, who a lot of people are thinking Mary Magdalene is the one that was standing behind him at the meal and, and you know, anointing his feet with her tears and, and perfume and everything like that. Um, and it says here that she had had seven demons cast out of her, right? Um, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's businessman, uh, sorry, business manager. So she's pretty well connected. Um, you know, you get, you get Mary and, and, and uh, um, Joanna in the same room. You have this, this prostitute, demon-possessed, crazy lady, and then you have upper echelon, right? Um, and then we have Susanna. Sorry, no details about Susanna. Only time mentioned in the Bible. And many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Jesus takes the show on the road and he gets his 12 disciples and then a bunch of ladies. <laughs> and some were connected and others were not. But all of them were, were, were making the ministry of Jesus possible. Now, Jesus is Jesus. He could have done it on his own, right? But he chose to engage these people in his mission. Now, we don't, we intentionally don't talk about giving very much, if at all, at Greenhouse. If you notice, like, there's no giving things. We don't talk about giving. We don't pass a plate. If, if you've noticed, you probably haven't even, the most we do is, is, is a slide that says two easy ways to give. You can text or you can go online or you can just go put money down there, right? Why do we do that? Because we recognize that in our culture, finances and giving money to a church or to religion is, is, has a lot of negative baggage with it. it. It's misused and abused. And so we've just said, God, if people want to give, they can give. We're not going to harp it or anything like that. One of the negative sides of that, though, is that what we do with our finances is a huge part of discipleship. Giving money to God is an act of worship. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of trust. It's an act of, of like, like, God, this is your money to begin with. And so I'm just going to give you a portion of it, right? And, and so there's always this tension that we have because like we don't want, we, we believe in discipleship, all of life discipleship, not just pushing stuff here, but living it out, our, our, our time, our resources, our finances and everything like that. And, and what does Jesus do? He says, hey, we're going on the road. So we got to pay for some food. We might need to pay for some lodging, you know, got to get kids crafts and snacks, cups, and, you know, things like that for the kids. Right. And, and, and that costs money. And so what does he do? He has all these people that say, Hey, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll give you this. And, and there's this rich lady who probably had copious amounts of money. And then there's this demon possessed lady who's probably been a beggar her whole life. But guess what? They all give. And, and so what we see is, one, it's the women that are giving. 
The nobodies, those people, the people who, guys, in the Jewish religion, in the temple, you had the court of women. And there was this three-foot-high fence that kept the women in their place. And there was these dire warnings. There was the court of women. There was the court of Gentiles. There was the, all these different layers that you could work your way to. Well, if you were women, you could only get that far. And so they were excluded from the Holy of Holies. But guess what? Jesus says, let's go. Come on. Let's all pile in together. Let's, you got this. Great. You got that. Let's great. Let's all, we're all in this together. And that's what it means to follow Christ is we are all in. And so the last thing that we see is that Jesus includes those people in his mission. He includes those people in his mission. We like to say, if you are on team Jesus, there are no bench warmers. Now, some of us are like, that's awesome. I never wanted to be in others for like, no, wait, I have to. I remember I've been a coach a lot of years and every now and then I'll have a player who's kind of like, hey, get in there. No. 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 Like what? You practice all the time, but I don't want to play in a game. What? <laughs> I will, this is so I had two buddies in high school some of you have heard this one <laughs> should I go there <laughs> my inner youth pastor is showing through right now so Derek and Dustin they were two buddies of mine from high school they never got in the game like they would never get in games they were great guys and they were decent players but we had a really good basketball team and so they would never get in and so one time this is like old school like early 1990s, Nebraska, right? Where we had warm-up pants and warm-up shirts, right? And, and when you get into the game, like that, rip your shirt off, go into the game. Well, all of a sudden, uh, Derek and Dustin, we were blowing a team out, and our coach goes, guys, get in the game. They're like, they look at each other, like, no. They're like, what? Get in the game. Coach, we can't. Like, you can't get in the game? I, I cleaned up what he actually said. He goes, coach. We don't have anything on underneath. They were butt naked under their warm-ups. They just wanted to be bench warmers. Well, guess what? You better be dressed and ready to go. Because in, when you're following Jesus, he says, you're in the game. And, and ready or not, right? Here we go. Okay, sorry. That one was for free. I didn't even, that's not even in my notes. Paul does an amazing job of bringing this together in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. The implication here is that we spend so much time trying to, trying to be put together, trying to be special, trying to be unique. That is our human nature. We want to be amazing. Nobody wants to be those people. But yet here, Paul is saying, guess what? You're a fragile clay pot. And the more cracked you are, the more the light of Jesus shines through. The more dings, dents, scratches, failures, embarrassments, all those things, the more we become the poster children of the grace of Jesus. Amen? But yet... Our culture says, you're fine just the way you are. That's a cheap lie. 
Because yes, you are, but not because of just how innately special you are. It's because of who Jesus is in you. He makes you enough. I'm, I'm told all the time, I've just grown up feeling like I'm enough. And I said, well, guess what? I am. No, you're not. Neither am I. But Jesus in you is. And nobody can take that away. And when you screw up, it doesn't change the fact that you are still enough because of Christ in you. We are jars of clay, and the more the light shines through, the, the, the more we are following what Jesus wants to do in and through us. Jesus is challenging the haves that it's easy for their gospel to become about them. It's about being put together, about living my best life. It's about, you know, all these things like that. But instead, Jesus says to those people, it's the fragileness, it's the cracks, it's the, the, the mistakes, it's the embarrassments. It's all those things that enable the love, the grace, the truth, the forgiveness, the power of Christ to shine through us. So how often do we try to not be those people, right? How often do we hide? How often do we, do we try to avoid each other? And, and we go into isolation or we just put on this brave face and, and blah, 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 blah. Like, like the, uh, somebody asked me, uh, I've, I've kind of like people say, how are you doing? I was like, I'm a solid okay. And it's sort of like, okay, wait, are you okay? And I said, I just said, I'm a solid okay. Well, what's wrong? Well, nothing. But you're not, you said you're doing okay. No, I'm not doing great. I mean, I'm just, some days I'm great and sometimes okay. I'm not doing terrible. If I do terrible, I'd tell you I'm doing terrible. I'm a solid okay. Okay, okay. all right, you know. Like, how often do we try to be, you know, put together so we won't be looked at as those people? But then the other side, though, too, how much do we allow others to be those people? And to help them understand, you might feel like you're those people, but guess what? We're all those people. And we're walking this journey together, pursuing Christ. How are we letting Jesus work this in our lives and then also be the hands and feet, the reflection of Jesus as he heals, shows compassion, shows encouragement, validation, defense, forgiveness, and inclusion, and to be the poster children of God's grace. Now, this week I was kind of challenged that a lot of our focus is on trying to pursue God. I think that's really important. We, we pray, we read our Bible, we worship, we gather, we, all these things like that. We want to be people that pursue God. But too often we forget to remind each other that God first pursues us. God pursues every single one of us. And guess what? He pursues every single person that you'll run into today, tomorrow, this week, ever. God pursues us. This morning, um, somebody was talking about last night, 
apparently it must have been fun because Nicole laughed a lot and Nicole's laugh is infectious, right? I remember when we, were, we weren't even dating yet, we were in college, a small college in the cafeteria, I would hear her laugh across across the cafeteria, sometimes across the entire campus, you know, it carries, right? Like we had friends that live like down the block from us and they were, they would text us, you guys outside having a good time. I was like, like, they can hear my, you know, but I remembered like, like just being so attracted to, to, to her. And and that was just one of the things is kind of like, I just, I want to pursue her. But then I was kind of like, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was dating somebody else at the time, so that wasn't good. But, but <laughs> I dealt with it, all right? I dealt with it. It took care of things. Um, but then I found out that she was actually pursuing me. Guess what? I wanted to pursue her even more. And that's the thing with God is when we pursue him, it's one thing, but it can... But when we, receive, when we remember that he is pursuing us, oh, let's go. Let's go. Guys, let's never forget the fact that God is passionately, sacrificially pursuing you every moment of your life. That's the base of what our faith is is that when we are struggling, when we feel beat down, when we have a hard week, a hard month, um, all that, that we are being pursued every step of the way. So this week, let's watch out for those people in our lives. Let's watch out for who is in our, our, our orbit that is kind of like those people. Listen to them, watch them, listen to ourselves and watch ourselves, watch how we respond to them and treat them. And then talk to Jesus about how to get ready to take action and ultimately take action with what he wants us to do. And last, if, if you this morning feel like one of those people, that's why all this is called the good news because he loves you. He loves those people because those are his kind of people. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you you gave everything for us. God, from you pursuing us in the garden, God, you incarnating yourself into your creation through Jesus, all the way to the end in Revelation, where it talks about how you're going to return and you're going to draw us to yourself. God, you pursue us. There are no clarifications. There's no, there's no caveats. There's no only if, dot, dot, dot. No, you love us. And so, God, this morning, I pray that we can just surrender to that, God, that we can, we can cast aside all the, all, the, all the hurt that's been done to us in the name of religion, maybe even in the name of Jesus. It just whatever, God, I pray that we can experience the freedom of your love. God, the fact that grace is an undeserved gift that we simply receive and it transforms every aspect of our lives. God, if there's any of us that are holding back, God, I pray that we would stop, that we would just relent to your love, that we would just surrender to that. God, that we would open up every area of our lives to your truth, to your presence, to your joy, to your peace. God, that we could extend that then as you change us, we could extend that to those around us.
God, they will know we are your disciples by our love. God, fill us with your love. Praise you to your name.